Well, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And as I read aloud, you can read along silently from verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This morning, it's our desire to see that while Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of the glorified majesty of Jesus Christ, a foreshadowing of his second coming, Peter instructed us to give our attention to the more sure prophetic word which God, not man, gave us through men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And as we unfold this somewhat lengthy text together this morning, there are really two things that I hope for you and me to see together. First, I want you to see Peter's credibility to predict Christ's return. You and I will see Peter's credibility to predict Christ's return. Second, I'd like for us to observe Peter's emphasis on the more sure word of God. His emphasis on the more sure word of God. Now you know from our previous studies in this book that Peter has given to us that which is necessary for personal godliness. It is quite common in our day for someone to claim to know Christ and have zero interest in Christ's likeness. You might say it this way, one might claim to be a follower of Christ while he has no interest in following Christ. He simply wants some of the superficial elements of what it means to be called a Christian. That's not unusual. And so zero interest in holiness ultimately shows zero interest in the person of Christ. But Peter, as I said, has given us that which is necessary for personal godliness. He's shown us what's necessary for personal holiness, and it's not something to be begrudged. It is something to fully enjoy. Spiritual growth, victory over sin, godliness are a certainty for those who will adhere to these words in verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So this jam-packed statement is sandwiched between the same idea stated clearly, but twice. First, his divine power has granted to us all things necessary for life and godliness. And then at the end of verse 4, we are told that we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the person who says, I just can't overcome sin, I just can't gain victory in these areas, he is living in rejection of what Peter has said about a life committed to godliness. It's not to say that it's not without difficulty, it's not without trial, it's not without tribulation. In fact, we're promised that those things will come. In fact, we're promised that those things are ordained vehicles by which godliness will come. Then in verse 5, he says, and gets very, very specific about how godliness comes about. If I could say it this way, he gets down to the elements or the steps by which godliness is gained. 
He says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, let's, let's look at that again together. For if these qualities are yours, in other words, these are things that you have volitionally embraced. These are the desires of your heart. If they are yours, and what else? If they are what? Increasing. So you haven't simply gained them in some sort of perfunctory manner and placed them on the shelf of your life, but they are the love of your life. You have a devotion to these steps, if you will, these elements of the development of a godly life. But he also says that they are increasing. And if so, they keep you from, and this is what you want to be kept from, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we had a very, very helpful exposition in Revelation 1 and Revelation 5 and Revelation 19 from Matt. And Matt well pointed out that that study is extremely congruous with our study in 2 Peter. Why do I say that? Because of what Peter just said. Peter is saying here, if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that is the singular element of spiritual growth that is most important for anyone's life. It's increasing knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. And so what could possibly be more helpful than a quick study in the book of Revelation to show the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a lamb and is a lion? How could we have better been served than to examine such a beautiful text that depicts the person of our Savior? I trust that that study led to your increasing godliness. But why then does godliness seem to be impossible? Why does spiritual victory elude some for years who are convinced they're in Christ? Why does sin seem to consistently gain the upper hand? And every single one of us in this room can attest to the fact that there's been at least one or maybe more chapters in our lives where we have felt that way. And for some of us, we've done a pretty good job of convincing others that it wasn't a real dilemma, and yet it was, and perhaps it is even today. This is not unusual. If this is the state of your life today, uh, that you've become better at pretending to be a godly person than actually becoming a godly person, you're not alone. And my heart goes out to you. My life was that way for many years until the whitewashed tomb that I was was exposed, praise God, by godly men who loved me enough to speak the truth and love to me. It was in that moment that my thoughts about my spiritual achievements were shattered and they needed to be. But this is the unfortunate reality of the evangelical church today, that achievement, personal performance, the ability to persuade others to think that you're in a godly rhythm is of higher value than actual godliness. And I don't say this condemningly, I say this truthfully and passionately and compassionately because I'm certain that in a church our size, we're not a big church, but we're a growing church, and I'm convinced that in a church our size of about 200 people, that there are those who are struggling with this reality. If not, then that would be a defiance of the nature of the church. New Christians struggle, especially new Christians who do not have legitimately sound teaching, and they flail. And they reach for a foothold for spiritual growth, and they think it's about to happen. They think that that epiphanal experience is right around the corner. And then at times they think it's happened, and they think, wow, I'm on, I'm on the path. Because now I'm excited, and that excitement dies six days later, and they don't know what to do. So this is not an unusual reality. But the question again is, why does godliness seem to be impossible? Is the word of God not enough? It's not that the word of God is not enough. In fact, 
the Word of God says this about the Word of God. Another way to say it is that God has said this about the Word of God in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. At this point, we could almost say, enough said. It's true. It's perfect. The psalmist goes on to say, reviving the soul. If you're not experiencing the revival of your soul due to the perfection of the law of God, it is not that the law of God is not perfect and that it does not revive souls. It is, and it does. The psalmist goes on to say, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So why, then, does godliness elude the person who desires to be godly? Here's why. Because there are false teachers. That's why. There are false teachers. That's why. We are warned of this in Ezekiel 13, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. You see this? And I told you before we begin this study in 2 Peter, we will name names. Why? Because you need to know the difference. I'm not just going to name names. I'm going to quote the people who say things that prove them to be false teachers. The primary essence of a false teacher is a person who is promoting self. He's promoting his own ideas. And often he twists the word of God so as to support his own ideas and his agenda. Ezekiel 13 goes on to say, and I'll start back with verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. See, that's what they're doing. He's saying prophesy against them. When they prophesy their own ideas and they're saying, hear the word of the Lord, he's saying prophesy against them. Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. This is not a secondary issue. The faithful church exposes the false church. The faithful teacher exposes the false teacher. It's not a popular activity. But it's a necessary activity. And the man who would be the faithful shepherd must protect sheep from wolves. If he doesn't, he's not faithful. So we want to answer the question that I told you a few weeks ago that I would answer for you. Does God still speak today? Because this is a crucial issue with regard to true teachers and false teachers. We will answer that question and you may be surprised with what the bible has to say about this so our first point we want to look as i said at peter's credibility to predict christ's return we want to look at peter's credibility or even his authority to predict christ's return john macarthur has said that peter here has a supernatural experience it's a supernatural experience 
we would not say that supernatural experiences did not take place in the Bible. They did. This is certainly one example. Peter, just as the other apostles, had been accused of dreaming up the return of Christ. And further, in chapter 3 of the letter we're in right now, 2 Peter 3, 1, Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever, since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter is about to declare his authority or his credibility to speak of or to predict the return of Jesus Christ in light of the fact that there are those who naysay against the word of God. So you've been saying all this time, and at this point it would have been perhaps about 30 years, you've been saying all this time that the Savior would return, that Jesus would return, and they deliberately deny or choose not to remember the reality of the creation of the world and the fact that the world itself, the earth itself, was deluged with water. They deny that fulfilled prophecy, which took some time to be fulfilled. And so they are deliberately still denying prophecies that will be fulfilled. Now, 2,000 years later, we still have a strong tradition of false teachers who deny that Christ will return. But Peter leaning on his credibility in his supernatural experience, says these words, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jeremiah the prophet warned against those who do lean on myths in Jeremiah 14, 14, where he says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Peter's saying, We didn't do that. James and John and I did not lean on cleverly devised myths as the false prophets of old did, and as current false prophets do even today. In Jeremiah 23, 16, Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. That's rather apropos for our day, isn't it? When the constant theme of Disney World is follow your heart. Every little girl learns to follow her heart and, you know, dress up like a princess and follow her heart because her heart must be good. And God is pointing out here, nothing against Disney, by the way, I'm just telling you, that's, that's how it works and you know it. But the Lord is pointing out the fact here that the person who says, follow your own heart is also saying, when you do so, no disaster shall come upon you. But the very reality is the person who follows his own heart, the person who thinks he was born with a free will and follows his own heart is to expect disaster to come upon him. He should be certain that it will. Jeremiah goes on to say, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. There are those who speak as if they're speaking the word of the Lord, and they're not. And this is why spiritual growth is cut off at the pass. Some remnant of false teaching follows those who would otherwise grow spiritually and become godly, but they don't because they lean on some traditional belief that was so important to them early on, and it destroys any and all potential for godliness. In verse 26 of this chapter in Jeremiah, 
How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Point is, we don't know. It will go on and on and on. Now the day will come where it will all be torn down. But for now, those who prophesy lies prophesy the deceit of their own heart. Deceit fills their hearts and they prophesy from that deceit. Out of the mouth speaks the heart. So it was quite common for false prophets, false teachers, to declare that they were speaking on God's behalf when in fact they were communicating cleverly devised tales. Peter says, not us. We were there. Matthew 7.15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The subtlety of arriving in sheep's clothing always paves the way for the non-discerning to say, what a lovely person. What a nice individual. He seems so kind. Surely everything he says is true. This is how wolves operate. Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 3 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, now listen, it's interesting what he says here. The aim of our charge is love. See that? Sound doctrine is about love. Sound doctrine runs heavily from the heart of the person who legitimately loves people. The person who's committed to sound doctrine and teaching sound doctrine and destroying false doctrine wants to see people become godly. He wants them to enjoy the godly, spirit-filled life of a mature Christian. And so he exposes false doctrine, and he does it relentlessly. That's what Paul did. He, goes, he says here, nor to devote themselves, he teach them not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And again, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The man who has a clear conscience can teach truth unapologetically and lovingly, knowing that God will stir the heart of the true believer. Certain persons, Paul says, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is why, this, friends, beloved, is why there is a stagnation, a reversal of spiritual growth. Because even in the true church, there are those who cling to false theology. It was impressed upon them so heavily, so deeply, so penetratingly, that it's nearly impossible to rip it out. And the repetitious, sound, faithful teaching of the Word of God, as utilized by the Spirit of God in the true child of God, will eventually gain victory over that false teaching. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, you probably remember that Paul says here, discipline yourself for godliness. The ESV says, train yourself for godliness. But listen to the real point behind that. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. It's false teaching. Things that are conjured up in the mind of man that elevate man's view of himself and deflate his high view of God have nothing to do with irreverent things that do not revere God irreverent silly myths and they are silly I love that word does silliness not describe a man-made theology or what describes it so well rather train yourselves for godliness discipline yourself in sound doctrine 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, why did I tack on verse 5 to this? Why did I not cut it off verse 4? Here's why. There's so much rampant, false evangelism in our culture. Just ask Jesus into your heart, a concept that's not found in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. On the other hand, where Paul here calls Timothy to do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry, it comes on the heels of saying, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. In light of what? Abandoning myths. Abandoning false teaching. Exposing it. Destroying it. And the person who says, well, you know, can't you just be positive? <laughs> In heaven, we'll just be positive. How's that? But for now, we will positively expose the negative reality of false teaching. We must. We must. In Titus 1, verse 10, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So, on the contrary, while Peter was being falsely accused of spreading fictitious tales, there were those who actually were spreading fictitious tales. And the scripture warns time and time again that those folks are out there. In fact, as you know from 2 Timothy, those folks are in here. Now, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but the truth is, in the modern local church, in the New Testament church, there will be those who will be passionately devoted to false doctrine. Passionately. And they will do everything they possibly can, just like water finds cracks, to find an audience. Praise God in our church. The times where I've heard of false, mythological, bad theology creeping out of someone's heart. It's been shut down by godly, faithful, gentle people who have said, Let's go to the Word of God. And one of two things happens when that transaction takes place. Either the person will say, yeah, 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 whatever, we'll get together, we'll do that, and it never happens. Or it does happen, each person humbles himself, and they can honestly attest to what the Spirit of God has actually stated in His Word. But you will find that the person who is most elusive and most creative and most crafty in his willingness to promote and infect others with false doctrine, is least willing to discuss it with those with whom he disagrees. Peter points to the reality that there are false teachers. That's really what 2 Peter is about. It's one of the main themes of 2 Peter. It's not unusual for liars who operate with a fundamental dishonesty to be quick to accuse honest people of lying, and that's what happened to Peter. There were those who were accusing him of lying while they themselves were pervasively devoted to dishonesty. This is in their spiritual DNA. It's who they are. Their father is the father of lies. When you hear a person frequently make untrue statements, you shouldn't be surprised when he attempts to cast a shadow of doubt on the words and integrity of someone who has proven to be honest. Many people will say about men like this, well, they, they mean well. Hogwash. They do not mean well. They mean evil. And in that evil, they want you to think they mean well. So they live a double life. Beware the man who shows little or no devotion to honesty, but is quick to accuse others of being wrong, especially when he accuses those who have a proven track record of honesty. P. 
Peter deliberately and directly draws attention to his and James and John's credibility to predict the return of Christ by saying, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. We not only lived life with him during his 33-year earthly ministry, we saw him in his majesty. Peter could say, we experienced the greatest of spiritual experiences ever known to mankind. We enjoyed the greatest experiential privilege. Now, Peter is not merely referring to his apostleship, nor his experience with Jesus. He's pointing to the moment during which Christ's full majesty was momentarily on display as a foreshadowing of what will be observed in him during his second coming. How do we know this? Because Peter has just said in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the return of Christ. And he states that he has credibility to predict it because of his experience with observing that foreshadowing of the majesty of Christ in the momentary transfiguration of Christ in the glorified state. He's coming back. Second Peter 3, verse 4, as I mentioned earlier, Peter says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? In verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter not only here leans heavily on his personal experience with the transfigured Christ, he points to the reality that there will be those, there are those, there have been those, there will always be those who will refute truth. They themselves live with a commitment to myths while accusing others of being committed to myths. But how do we know that he's referring to his second coming and not the first? The coming or advent of Christ is not an expression of his power in the original advent, as Peter states here about this one. Christ did not come in power like he will come in power. His first coming was couched in weakness as displayed in a defenseless infant. Humility of one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was his first arrival, as described by Paul the Apostle in Philippians 2. But further in Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. An obvious reference to the power of his second coming. He came as a lamb. He will return as a lion. He came on a weak donkey of shame, but he will return on a white horse of splendor. He came to receive wrath, but he will return to pour it out. He came with righteous humility, but he will return with righteous hatred. He came and was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But when he returns, he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He came as a lamb, but will return as a lion. But he will also come as a lamb. And so there will be no mistaking who he is, but he will not come as a lamb to the slaughter. No. He will come as the great lamb about whom it has been said, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders 
the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, he came as an infant in a manger, but he will return as a warrior in majesty. He came to shed his blood and befriend his enemies, but he will return to shed the blood of his enemies who have rejected his friendship. He came announcing that he brings not peace, but a sword that will set man against his father and a daughter against her mother. But he will return with that sword not to bring division, but death. You see, this is the lamb who was and who is and is to come. But while he was a lamb of meekness, he is now a lamb of majesty. And though he came in submission, he will return in supremacy. While he came in weakness, he will return as a warrior Though he came to lay down his life unto death, he will return and throw death into the lake of fire. He will not come as a man of sorrows, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but as a great and mighty warrior with a sword. And Peter and James and John got a momentary glimpse of this majesty with which he will return. For a moment, Peter saw the power of which he speaks when he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were there to experience and enjoy the majesty of the risen, transfigured, glorified Savior in his majestic power. Peter goes on to say, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father was well pleased in the Son's perfect, sinless obedience in his earthly, voluntary subordination to his Father. Peter states that we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. And in Luke 9, we have much more detail than Peter mentions in our text in 2 Peter 1. In Luke 9, 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. James and John at least had the wisdom to keep their mouths shut. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Unlike many today who have some seemingly epiphanal revelational experience, they want to tell everybody about it with no real confirmation that it has anything to do with the Lord, but it was real because they were there when it happened. Peter didn't emphasize his observation of this power. He didn't draw attention to his experience. He leaned on it as an expression of the reality that he had credibility to predict the second coming, the return of Christ. But he by no means 
put any measure of emphasis on his observation or his experience. In fact, as I pointed out, in Luke 9, we have much more information. What is Peter's point here in 2 Peter 1? It is that we have the more sure word of God, the more fully confirmed word of God. So the second thing that I want you to see, now that we've looked at Peter's credibility to predict Christ's return, I want you to see Peter's emphasis on the more sure word of God. This is the heartbeat of the faithful Christian. It is the more sure, more sure word of God. Peter is by no means diminishing the significance of his experience. He's simply not focusing on it. He intends to remind believers, as you know from earlier in this chapter, of that which leads to godliness. And how do we know what leads to godliness? Because it comes out of God's word. This, John MacArthur has said, is a supernatural revelation. So Peter has experienced a supernatural experience. And now he turns your attention and mine to supernatural revelation, and he refers to it as being more fully confirmed, and then he unfolds it. It's important here to note not just the importance of these two points, Peter's credibility and Peter's emphasis, Peter's credibility in his experience and Peter's emphasis on the Word of God. But in particular, it is important to note the significance of the second point in light of the first. In that Peter had the credibility to predict the return of Christ that as displayed in his experience with the risen Christ, he rather than emphasize that experience, emphasized the more sure word, the more word, the more fully confirmed word. Peter would say, I have credibility, but what really matters, what's really important, what I really want to emphasize is what's more sure. That which is more fully confirmed, the word of God, the prophetic word of God, the word of God as delivered by the prophets. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Why the prophetic word? Why not just call it the word of God? Peter's initial emphasis is on the word of God as it has been delivered. It was given by the prophets, true prophets, prophets of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 10, you may remember Peter saying, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Same prophets. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's the prophetic word. It's the word as delivered by prophetic teachers, prophets of God. Peter earlier for us has pointed back to their selfless attempts, their diligence in ministering to us. Not themselves, but us. And their faithfulness to search the word and to teach the word and to disseminate the word, they were serving you and me, and angels do not comprehend this. They long to, but they don't. Why does he mention that it is more fully confirmed or more sure? Because it is. That's why. He declares it to be more fully confirmed because it is. His experience is sure, but the prophetic word is more sure. His experience was verifiably confirmed by him, by James and John, 
and even by Moses and Elijah and Jesus and the Father. But with all that confirmation, the word of the prophets was more fully confirmed. If there is any truly fully confirmed verifiable source of truth, it is the prophetic word. And in the face of false teaching and false prophets, the more fully confirmed prophetic word was and is the right standard of truth, not Peter's experience. And if Peter leaned on the prophetic word, not his experience, while his experience was in fact real and true and of the Lord and verified by the Father with his own voice, how utterly inappropriate at best and spiritually dangerous at worst for people today to lean on their experience as if they were receiving a word from God when they are not. If Peter didn't lean on that when it was from God, how utterly inappropriate for those today to lean on it when it is really an addition to the word of God, not given by God, but made up by man. Peter's point was that while his experience was verifiably true, it was not his standard of truth. The word of God from the prophets was. In fact, what does Peter say about the prophetic word? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. It's not unusual for those who are deeply committed to an overemphasis on their experience to have very, very little interest in genuine Bible study. This is an illustration that takes very little effort or time to understand this idea of a lamp that shines in a dark place. See, if you've ever been in a dark place, you know how little effort it took on your part to pay attention to whatever source of light happened to exist at the moment. You paid attention to it because the great contrast between darkness and light drew your eye to that which your eye can see in a moment when your eye couldn't see anything else, right? Almost every night, I walk the exterior perimeter of my house and lawn after dark sets in with a flashlight, actually a fluorescent lamp. And I depend heavily on that lamp because without it, it's almost completely dark. Now, why do I do that? <laughs> I'm looking for the enemy who functions at night without much light. Black widows and brown widows. They thrive in Southern California and they only come out when it's dark. So I find them and I step on them and I kill them. Why? Because the six and soon to be seven people I'm responsible for and whom I love very much would be harmed by them if I let them grow into adult spiders who would carry enough venom to send a child to the hospital and maybe to the grave. That's why. And I know that I will do well to pay attention to that fluorescent lamp shining in a dark place. Without it, I'm in great danger of succumbing to the enemy myself. I wouldn't stand a chance without it. I might be able to guess where the enemy is based on their patterns revealed by my previous experience with the lamp shining in a dark place. But while this enemy is mostly predictable, it's not completely predictable. I'm often surprised by a spider that's growing toward adulthood that shows up in a place where I'm certain I checked the previous night. Either I missed it, which is very unlikely, <laughs> but possible, or that spider simply chose a new location. If I go out there without a lamp to shine in the dark, I could easily walk right into that spider's freshly claimed territory and get bitten and end up very ill myself. I need that lamp. And I will do well to pay attention to that lamp in dark places. I can't lean on my experience. I need that lamp to light my path. My experience is not sufficient for defeating the enemy. And by the way, my memory of my experience is dependent upon my flawed mind to get it straight. So even if my experience were a valid source, its best help for me would be diminished by my mitigated ability to even remember it. Not so with the lamp. Every night, it effectively 
accurately reveals the truth about the enemy and the landscape and the pitfalls that await and provide exactly what's necessary for me to protect my family. And it's a real bonus when I find an egg sack. Most of what I've read says there may be as many as 300 little black widows in that egg sack. So when I find one and squish it, I'm preventing a great deal of arachnid mayhem. And the same is true with the prophetic word of God. In fact, it's more true. Just as a lamp in a dark place, you do well to give your attention to the prophetic word of God as it enables you to navigate and defeat the enemy in a very dark place, which is exactly what the world is. The more diligent you are to give your attention to God's prophetic word, the better equipped and courageous you are to destroy the attacks of the enemy in their most embryonic stage. The better and more regular the light, the more and better equipped you will be. Now you say, Todd, why don't you just hire an exterminator? Well, I did that. In fact, I've done that a number of times, and guess what? They never managed to get rid of Black widows and brown widows. In fact, every exterminator I've ever talked to has said, our chemicals won't kill black widows and brown widows. I recall one night when I hadn't walked the yard for several nights, the very evening following an exterminator's visit, I killed 89 spiders. 89. And we do not have a big lawn. They multiply. Evil multiplies in the darkness. And you can't depend on last week's light to kill today's evil. You will do well to give your attention to that lamp every day and every night. Why do you think David said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He meditates on God's law day and and night, not even just once a day. Why do you think Spurgeon's devotional guide is titled Morning and Evening? In its introduction is written Isaiah 50, verse 4. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. It also includes Psalm 63, verses 5 and 6. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Is it not dark in the morning when you arise and dark in the evening when you lay down? No, you say you have an unusual schedule. But the world in which you live is a dark place, whether morning or evening or afternoon. Joshua 1 verse 8 tells us, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But you don't know that he's with you if you're not meditating on his word so that you will do everything that is in it. Why would you think so highly of and even exalt your experience when you have a lamp that shines in a dark place? Your experience is no lamp. Why would you declare that your experience is from God when you don't really know that, when you have more information than you might ever exhaust that is certainly from God? Would you ever run out of truth to declare as having come directly from God if you were to abandon the exaltation of your experience and simply proclaim the prophetic word? No. You would never, ever run out of life-changing material if you only devoted yourself to explaining and understanding the truth of the light of God's word. You can't go wrong with that declaration, but you will certainly go wrong when you declare that God spoke to you. This is not to diminish the significance of what good God has brought into your life, the immeasurable blessings of his kindness and love. But if you want God's glory to be on display, quote him. Proclaim his truth. Is it God's, think of this, is it God's tangible real life blessings to you that will save the lost? Of course not. Of course not. 
the prophetic word. It's God's word that saves the lost. We know from Romans 10, verse 14, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Your experience never changed anybody's life. Never. And it won't. Again, this is not to diminish the great blessings that God has poured out in your life in a tangible and temporal way. But the word of God never, ever says anything that would be congruous with the idea that your experience or anyone's experience brings anyone to Christ. Now, you may be able to look back in your life and remember a time where you explained some experience and someone made some sort of profession of faith in Christ, but that was not a real profession of faith in Christ. You say, well, it proved to be real. Well, somewhere along the lines, they heard the word of God and they heard the gospel. And that's what God used to change them, not your experience. Now, we owe it to the Apostle John, who was also there with Peter and Moses and Elijah, to see Jesus in the glorified state, to see what he has to say about this. In 1 John 1, verse 1, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. We are what? We are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. We are giving you the word of God, the prophetic word of God. It is via the prophetic word of God that one's joy is made complete. John goes on to say, This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And as you know, he goes on to explain that those who walk in darkness are not of God, and those who walk in the light are at the end of that book in chapter 5 verse 13 John says I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life how can you know that you have eternal life because if you will the plan of salvation is written it's given to us in the word what about James he was there James 1 16 do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You see this recurring theme? Each of their willingness to express the fact that God is a God of light. And then he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change. He doesn't morph. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He goes on thereafter to explain that it is by the word of God that people are saved. And this is that passage where he says we are to be slow to anger. That passage is so generically used in so many circumstances related to anger, but that's not what James is talking about. It's not to say that it doesn't apply, but James' point is that there are those who respond in anger to the word of God. And he says, be slow to your anger. Do not receive the word of God in anger. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He goes on to say, be doers of the word. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, 
he will be blessed in his doing. And in so doing, he will desire to do away with the filthiness and the rampant wickedness of his life. I want to end with a call for you and for me to consider how we might best give our attention to the prophetic word of God made more sure. I want to suggest that there's a wrong way to go about this. Wrong ways or wrong reasons, bad reasons for giving your attention to the prophetic word. And it's this. To gain ammunition to disprove those with whom you disagree. Men who are unchanged by truth are only interested in using it to twist their opponent's arms with it rather than being sanctified by it. To them, it is not God's instrument of godliness, but a weapon for proving others wrong. And of course, another reason that would go hand in hand with this is simply to impress others, to show them what you know. I know men who have confessed years later that they went to seminary so as to have knowledge to be able to use against others. What's the right reason? What is the right reason to give your attention, to heed Peter's command, his counsel, to give your attention to the prophetic word made more sure? It's really found in Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer in John 17 where he says to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And if that is your desire, then God will accomplish that. Much like as he did with the Thessalonians. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul says, and we also thank God constantly. Now, this is a real personal, sentimental reality for me in my pastoral life. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Back up prior to this, where Paul has front-loaded how this came to pass. How is it that Paul can confidently and gratefully express his gratitude to the Lord for the faithfulness of the Thessalonians who received the word of God, not as the word of men, but as the word of God? Let's go back then to verse 7. We'll finish with this. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As we said from the beginning, false teachers have a heartfelt intent to deceive. And with every false teacher, there is a false motive. That motive is not the better good of those in the flock. They ultimately prove themselves not to be shepherds. Can a man teach? Fine. But can he lead? Will he genuinely shepherd the flock? Will he protect them from false doctrine? Will he go back to the same legitimate foundational doctrinal truths of the scripture regardless of the criticism he receives for doing it that man is a shepherd that was paul and that was timothy and that was silas and so paul could without pride and in true humility say you genuinely received the word of god from us as the word of god not as the word 
of men. But as I said, he front loads that statement with a willingness to boldly and honestly declare, we were faithful to you. And I don't have to spend much time telling you that there are plenty of men in ministry today who are not faithful. And it's my great joy, as I've told you many times, to say to you that each of you who is involved in a family group in our church has found a shepherd who's faithful to teach you, to lead you, to protect you, to guard you, to correct you, to reprove you in love. And this, friends, should not be abnormal. This should not be unusual. This is the simple reality of the New Testament church. The sad reality is that we are an unusual church. I'm not saying we are the only church who operates this way. There are many churches who operate with a legitimate commitment to the New Testament blueprint. But one of the things that you will see increasingly in due time as laws in our land are changing is that churches that are not committed to the leaders, first of all, being above reproach, will fail. They will buckle under the pressure. The responsibility that you and I have together is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with sound doctrine, knowing that the result will be that we can not only lean on Peter's credibility as an apostle and as one who observed the Lord's majesty and the transfiguration, but more specifically, that we can legitimately and confidently and humbly emphasize the more sure prophetic word without muddling it with our own experience. Father, thank you for a faithful, faithful church. I know so little of the heartache that so many pastors that I know experience on a regular basis. But we believe, Lord, the prophetic word which assures us that there will be those who will creep in unawares and will attempt to promote and infect the church with false doctrine. So I pray that you'd make us strong, that you would do so by helping us to be passionate about being in the word daily, trusting you, knowing that no interpretation of scripture was ever given by man, but it was the Holy Spirit who carried men along, who delivered your word on the Holy Spirit's behalf. Father, we thank you for the perfection of your word, that it does revive souls. And as you have revived our souls, we pray that you would make us faithful to live in light of your word and to communicate your word faithfully that those whom we know and love who are without Christ would know him and see him and love him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.